Are you a marketing or advertising professional looking to stay ahead of the game? Well, we've got the perfect opportunity for you. Advertising Week New York is back for its 19th edition, and it's bigger and better than ever. Picture this, four jam-packed days of inspiring keynotes, thought-provoking panels, and networking with the industry's brightest minds. Advertising Week New York is where the world's top brands, agencies, and leaders come together to shape the future of marketing and advertising. But wait, here's the best part. You can secure your spot at Advertising Week New York during the exclusive Early Bird Summer Sale. Act fast and save 30% on all past types. That's right, you'll have access to every session, every workshop, and every unforgettable moment. Don't miss this chance to gain insights from the industry's trailblazers, connect with potential clients, and elevate your career. But remember, this sale ends on August 1st. Head over to advertisingweek.com slash New York today and buy your pass. No promo code needed. The 30% discount applies automatically. Advertising Week New York, the ultimate gathering for marketing and advertising professionals. Be part of the conversation, be part of the innovation, and be part of the future. Get your early bird sale pass now and join us at Advertising Week New York. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is one of the rising stars in the blues rock world. He's an originally a native of Lake Charles, Louisiana, one of the great, great places in our country. Grew up in Houston. He is climbing up the ladder. The new single, Alive on a Wire, was released just a couple months ago. We've got a follow-up runner uh, coming out any day now. And it's our great pleasure to welcome to Great Minds, Clay Melton. Welcome, Clay. Hey, man. Thanks for having me on. Uh, it's great. So, Clay, I'm a huge fan of uh, the blues and Texas blues in particular. And there's something special going back. You know, T-Bone Walker comes to mind, but so many other great legends. Uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan, the late great. But can we talk about the particularly unique role uh, and place in history and present that Texas blues plays in the genre. I mean, you know, like you named a couple of greats and Texas and Louisiana just has such a rich blues and music history and jazz and all these root styles. Um, you know, and before I even really got into guitar, my first exposure to music was my dad's uh, cassette collection in a briefcase and uh, I had a lot of old uh, classic country, uh, classic rock, ZZ Top, which is, you know, kind of a strong indicator of the road that I would later go down on is just a three piece uh, blues rock, you know, which is the format of my own band. And I think, you know, what you get with the Texas blues is all the country influence, you know, 
all the you know clean telecasters that you hear and you know early nashville recordings um all those vocal groups were big in texas at the same time blues was becoming popular recorded music you know and in houston specifically we have lighten hopkins you know which is uh its own kind of genre and that's the whole thing is when people think of uh te texas blues alone they think you know roadhouse shuffle kind of um you know upbeat blues uh, but within the blues genre, there's just so many styles. It's very regional, like folk music, you know, it is folk music. Um, and so to me, Texas brings something with a little more country flair. And then, you know, when you go to Louisiana, you have something with a little bit more R&B uh, influence um, and kind of that Dixieland swing era that went into the jazz and blues artists that were popular. So one of the things I love to do is to talk about names that if guys like you and me, Clay, don't talk about them are largely lost in history. And you mentioned one of the most important ones, and that's Lightning Hopkins. Can we talk a little bit more about what a giant of music he was and how hugely influential he was on the whole genre? Oh, hugely. I mean, and... Lightning Hopkins is a great example to, of what I was talking about as far as uh, blues being so regional. You know, Boom 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 is, you know, one of his, you know, very popular songs. And that finger style really transcended and was, you know, um, influential to a lot of uh, electric guitar uh, when electric guitar started entering the blues genre. Uh, and you know, you have Bo Diddley, kind of uh, obviously massively influential on rock and roll, um, all stemming from you know his own really original rhythms. Um, and you know, with Lenny Hopkins, he I mean he was not the only Hopkins in the Houston area that has you know historical claim and and influence. Uh, Milton Hopkins played with the BB King band for uh, you know I think twenty plus years, toured with them all over the world. He lived right here in Houston and fantastic guitar player and I, I the Houston Blues Society has a project here where they help blues legends and older blues players um, you know if we we built a house uh, and and roof for Milton Hopkins and just you know whatever you can do to help support these artists that have given uh, so much to their own communities and you know he would just talk about how uh, much of a showman BB uh, King was and how they had to be ready to turn on a dime and really know uh, the whole gambit of all these different blue styles and not just what you would expect B.B. King to maybe play at every show. Absolutely fantastic. And, and let's dig deeper on some more of those legends in a minute. But let's go back now, Clay, to, to Back to Blue and to Burn the Ships. Your early albums going back, I guess, about six or seven years. You're still a young guy. Talk about that evolution and... Uh, did you imagine that you would be making a career out of something that clearly you're so, so passionate about? Uh, well, I mean, before I was doing, before those albums came to be, um, music when I was growing up was all I wanted to do. And, you know, when you're still in school and a uh, kid, that means one thing until you're convincing your parents um, to ditch school and, and start doing music full time and everything. Luckily, I got a lot of support in that way. and. Um, one thing you know i realized quickly and it was impressed upon me is being an independent musician it's like running a small business um you have to wear a lot of hats and pay attention to the details um and how you can really you know make the 
immense amount of work that it takes to put a record together worth it. Um, whenever we did ba uh, Burn the Ships, our first full-length album, it was pretty intentional that I didn't want to get pigeonholed right away and just do a straight blues rock album or, uh, you know, really one thing. Uh, part of that was because we were exploring a lot of writing styles. And second, I kind of wanted to see what people responded to, you know. Um, and so we did that project. It was an interesting moment because we had a very professional team, Dan Workman, who produced uh, with Destiny's Child and Beyonce when she was starting in Houston, uh, their first records. And um, Steve Christensen Engineering had a great team, but we were still doing it on a budget. We did all the whole album in about eight days. We would start on a new song every day. Um, and so it was a mix of making it happen like you do with a small business or a band and then also really trying to pay attention to details and make it something that I'm still proud to talk about today, which I, I still am. So you, you're nowhere near 30 yet, yet you've spent give or take 15 some odd years performing live. Go back now. I know you're going to go on a big tour this year, not just in the U.S., but globally. Talk about those early days on stage as a young kid. Had to be nerve-wracking. Clearly, you have tremendous skill and uh, passion for it. But, you know, that's a lot for a young guy. It's a lot if you think about it being a task for me. But it was so much fun. Um, I fell in love with playing guitar and was addicted to that. And then when I first played live, that was like a new addiction that started. And just it's it's a feeling I haven't been able to replicate other than sometimes when I'm watching a concert myself, you know, uh, I'll get the same kind of rush that I get sometimes when I'm on stage. Um, and that, that's like the unifying moment of music experiences to me is those moments in concerts where it, both the people on stage and in the crowd are experiencing the same emotions just from listening to music, you know. But we started playing, uh, I started playing in the garage with my best friend Kyle Tomchesson who now today is our operations manager and tour manager. Um, and he would play drums, I played guitar, we play in the garage until we were told to shut up every day. And uh, so we started playing crawfish boils and block parties and doing that first really cut the edge off of it being a big deal when we got into a venue because we were just excited. We felt like we had jammed in front of, uh, you know, crawfish boils pretty, pretty similar to what you're uh, playing, uh, the audiences you're playing to when you play your first clubs and stuff you know, just ice houses and whatnot. And really, once I started playing out live, it was a lot of um, Texas roadhouses and ice houses and Conroe, Texas and surrounding uh, Houston areas. Um, and it was a great experience. I mean, I think live experiences where all your personal education experience kind of compounds and you learn these lessons at a real time accelerated rate, you know, that you just can't get by playing alone. And as you get a little older, you start touring around uh, different experiences on the road. A lot of things go right. Once in a while, I'm going to guess something goes wrong. <laughs> oh, yeah. You're just waiting for the shoe to drop. You know, it's going to be something. And what matters is our team keeping a strong head about it, you know, just making it happen. That's fantastic. And the albums come out. Uh, you start to enjoy some success. That had to felt pretty good. 100%. You know, it's uh, it, it uh, busy is the best thing for us, and we're busier than we've ever been this year. Uh, thanks to John Lappin, you know, our publicist, and um, and 
Eddie Camoli, who's uh, our new booking agent that we signed with in December with Hungrier Agency. And that's really what we've been working towards as a, you know, like I've said, an independent band up to this point is um, building everything at a pace that is natural um, and not overextending ourselves on the tours when we're doing everything ourselves still. And so now it's, it's just, it feels like we're hitting a stride. Fantastic. And sharing the stage with some pretty big acts, playing with Robert Cray, uh, playing with, uh, you know, the great uh, Sir Earl Toon of Cool in the Gang fame. That's got to feel pretty good too. Uh, I mean, you always learn so much when you're uh, around, you know, like, you know, legends really is what I would call those artists to me. Robert, Robert Cray was so influential and you know, I mean, Sir Tune wrote Celebration, you know? <laughs> and so when, whenever you're on stage with them, you just, I'm just trying to watch and learn as much as I can. And, and you do, you, I mean, you can just, it's kind of sometimes not, un, it's not a tangible, um, but you can just see that there's this professional workflow and they do it with ease and they really, you know, make it about the show. So Clay, Take us inside the process. You're, you're recording singles. They eventually come out uh, as albums, but take us behind that process. You said eight days, roughly a song a day. I remember watching a great uh, piece about the Traveling Wilburys and how they were all so busy between George Harrison and Bob Dylan and Roy Orbison, Tom Petty, Jeff Lynne. Uh, you know, they basically found an eight or nine day window when they could all be in one place at the same time and just did a song a day. You've got a huge amount of talent there that was assembled. You're also a huge talent, but it's you. Talk about how you get it together and how that process really takes place. Not many of us in the non-music world can possibly understand what goes into creating a song, let alone an album. Well, you know, if you think about it, um, if we just to use a different term, a song can be looked at as a product. When you're creating, you don't think about it as a product because it just matters if you like the song enough to finish it, you know, and that's usually a good, pretty good test. Um, for me, it's always been, you know, when I first started writing songs my first way to record ideas was like a Tascam eight track recorder and i did that all the time and just tried to feel my way around arranging and so from my entire songwriting you know lifetime if you will it's uh been a process where i write as much as i can and now i've had such a solid group of same consistent uh players in the rhythm section to where when I bring a song, you know, it's got verses and chorus pretty much finished with as far as bones go. But the real test to me nowadays is, does it feel good when we play it as a group? Does it feel like us? Do we find ourselves wanting to continue jamming it? And uh, you know, that's kind of the first major ear test to me. And, you know, from the days where we were doing one song a day in a studio, we've really uh, gone to the total opposite end of the spectrum um and gone even more kind of diy with our approach um simply to give us more room to explore we've recorded our last two singles here in this living room uh at my home in houston texas and you know for the lifetime of the band we've always worked at the studio so while we don't have a pro our producer here in the room we're self-producing and you know we can 
cut recut the drums next week if we like to uh, after we sleep on the idea and it won't cost us any extra studio hours. And so then we've been working with our same producer, uh, Sebastian Cure, who's uh, originally from and moved back to Barranquilla, Colombia. So we're doing this remotely. And, you know, I, I see a process for us down the road to where we take the band down to Colombia. He's got, you know, great brass sections and percussion players down there that I'd like to kind of maybe do some fusion styles. Um, I think that's the fun thing about creating is there's there's no rules, you know. It's not until the music's done to where it really does turn into what are we doing with this product. So uh, on one hand, you've got this juxtaposition of the guitar, which is more or less the same as it always has been. Mm -hmm. Certainly the acoustic guitar, the great Les Paul, who first electrified the guitar. Uh, And then you've got the advent of all this technology that makes recording and makes the process you know, completely different, uh, unimaginable. I was just at Abbey Road for something in London. You know, the Beatles recorded 190 of their 200 some odd songs mm-hmm. in Studio Two all together at Abbey Road with George Martin. Talk about that balance between the same as it's always been, playing great blues guitar, but the evolution of technology and how you put it all together. Well, as far as the technical process, technology is only a blessing. Um, As far as the accessibility of being able to create, you know, I mean, to be able to make a record in my living room uh, without spending, you know, millions of dollars or anything like that. Um, But on a kind of bigger scale, the idea of the same as as it's been or as it ever was is kind of what I think really supports and keeps music like blues rock and uh, music that are kind of roots based alive and will keep it alive. And it also translates to our creative process is that just people will never get tired of seeing real people with real instruments in their hands, making the music happen right in that moment. And for us as a three piece, we're, uh, it's, we're about as raw as that process gets. And that's where I find we sonically come together and uh, our music speaks the best. That's why we did our live album last year, partially um, a reason why. But as far as the recording goes, even though we have all this capability and options to do things maybe after the fact or to do things, uh, some would say, some purists might say by cutting corners, um, we try and do things as live as possible. Um, we find we found this last track, Runner, we went back and recut drums and bass because we wanted to make sure they were done at the same time. We had done them separately because of what you, what you were talking about. Uh, just getting everybody in the same room wasn't working uh, schedule-wise. <laughs> and so it was like, all right, it's fine. We can cut these separately. And then we just found, like, it, we know it's going to groove a little bit better if we just jam it out all together at once. And it was well worth it, you know? I love it. And I want to get into the power of live. But let's talk about some of the other great three-piece bands out there. You mentioned ZZ Top. Uh, another great one that comes to mind is Rush, uh, <laughs> incredible three-piece band. The Police is another one that comes yeah. to mind. Talk about, uh, as a layman again, I always marveled at the amount of music that was coming out of three people, guitar, drum, and bass. Mm-hmm. Talk about assembly of all that power and how somehow it sounds like there's got to be five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten guys on stage, but there's only three. 
Uh, it's um, it's knowing your role to support the song, and um, and I think pushing the envelope because any group that's three that just three instruments that somehow creates something. You know, I mean, Rush is such a great example because they get really far out there um, with just the three of them. But knowing the role uh, for you to support the song best uh, as a three piece is so important because if you deviate from that, then everything else falls apart, you know? Um, and more so, you know, in this context for my band, Blues Rock, it's a little bit more of me working over the bed that the rhythm section's holding down. You know, the bass and drums are just so important in their relationship together on every song. Um, so it's, it's knowing your role just to support that. Um, I, I mean, <clears throat> I grew up listening, obviously, to uh, Steve Ray Vaughan, Double Trouble, Three Piece, The, the Experience, uh, Three Piece. Uh, and then, you know, and the, those were both early influences along with like Zeppelin, you know, what guitar player doesn't get into Led Zeppelin. Um, but, but, you know, they're also uh, three piece instrumentally, um, just also have a vocalist, right? Um, and so a lot of their arrangements kind of speak to that to me. <laughs> Let's talk about getting back on the road. We all had a tough couple of years, those of us who either love to perform or love to attend and see live music. Um, uh, the communal experience of thing, seeing something live, unlike anything else. Uh, talk about getting back on the road and what's ahead for Clay Melton in 2023. Great. Uh, we were, I mean, in last year when we put out our Live in Texas album, uh one i was talking about earlier we did it live because i thought thought that would really speak to you know honestly what we were doing <laughs> uh, as a band um, but also it was a very quick project to be able to turn around we recorded one concert at the top of the year and uh we're able to get it out in time to start uh doing some shows and we uh toured with the blue stones out of canada and uh des rocks out of new york city uh last summer in 2022 um, and now we're returning to the same markets uh, coming up here at the end of the month. Uh, so we're kicking off. We're pretty much on the road through August um, on and off. And we'll be in the East Coast. Uh, we're playing Iridium in New York City, Les Paul's home club down there uh, near Times Square. Uh, Daryl's house up in Pauling, which I was a huge fan of his, uh, of his show. And so I'm excited to see the club. So we're a lot of Northeast and then working our way kind of uh, over West throughout the summer. Fantastic, Clay. Can we talk about some of the names we touched on and a couple others, some of the legends and some of your influences? Yeah, I mean, for me, it was all um, all stemmed from Hendrix. I heard Hendrix in my dad's uh, car. He put on uh, his version all along the Watchtower. And that solo really blew my mind and, and got me just fascinated with the guitar. But then, you know, from interviews I could read or listen to, get my hands on, I... Uh, you know, learned about Hendrix's influences, people he would talk about, um, as well as, you know, Steve Rivon. And so like Buddy Guy has always been a favorite. Um, you know, he's, uh, he's, you know, out of Chicago, but by way of Louisiana as well. And, uh, you know, he's still, he's on his farewell tour right now and um, is still just commanding the stage. Um, so Buddy Guy, I love all the Kings. Freddie King's, I think my favorite. Um, I love his, his, booming voice and you know he's just he's got the guitar on one shoulder you know and uh it's just uh it's a cool tone albert collins um lonnie mack um 
a lot of um, late 60s and mid 70s, like psych rock, like yes. Um, and then I think just 70s, the 70s era of music is my favorite from a production value from where recorded music te technology was at that point. I think they really nailed it. You have so many pristine recordings like uh, the, like uh, Fleetwood Max Rumors album is, you know, a regarded album is from a just a technical standpoint um, or any of the Eagles records that Glenn Johns did. It sounds like a real instrument. It sounds like what that band should sound like in a great venue, but it's recorded, you know, and then uh, we get to the 80s and you have massive drums and guitars that are, you know, just distorted to hell. And it's just um, a different world. You know, I like a lot of music out of the 80s as well, but I think just a lot of the approach I loved in 70s music. And you mentioned B.B. earlier and Freddie King, but there was the third King, Albert Albert, King. yep. And and that session with uh, uh, a lot of guitar players are introduced to him through that uh, in sessions with Steve Ray Vaughan, which is great. Because you really see how much he influenced Stevie when they're playing side by side. Yeah, amazing stuff. And I'm glad you mentioned Buddy Guy as well. He's about 85, really the last of the living legends who's still out there working. Uh, I was lucky enough to see him a couple times. I feel very lucky to have seen John Lee Hooker when he was wow. alive. And I was a huge fan of Albert King, Albert Collins, rather, excuse me, a uh, huge fan of Albert Collins. And uh, I think he might have been the greatest live performer I've ever seen. Really? How cool. Man, yeah. I mean, his Telecaster tone. He would do a bit where he had a very long chord. And I remember seeing him once. There was an old, back in the uh, days of tobacco sponsorship, Benson and Hedges was a big sponsor of Blues Festival. There was a huge thing at the Garden. Willie Dixon was still alive. It wow. was ama amazing. And as part of that series of shows, there was an Albert Collins show at the Beacon Theater. And Albert took his guitar, walked off the stage, down the aisle, through the lobby, and was still playing, standing on Broadway. And <laughs> he was such a showman uh, and always had a big band with big horns. And, you know, nice. his, his lyrics always a little tongue in cheek. But yeah. at, at its core, he was just a great player. And exactly. I, I think, Clay, what you're doing, carrying on that legacy and building your own, so important uh, for that next generation. And uh, we wish you every success. I love the chance to talk to you here on Great Minds. And uh, let us know when you're in New York. We'd love to come see you. I, I appreciate it. I enjoyed the conversation. We'll be in New York City May 1st. Um, hope we can catch up. All right, Clay. Every success. Cheers. Thanks. Got me where you want me. Guess I'm gonna have to stay. Your number Show you